0: Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame.
1: And I'm your co-host, Claire Today,
0: we have a guest from the biology department. His name is Garth Casborn. Welcome. Thanks very much. Garth, uh, word on the street is you're doing uh, your PhD in biology and as such, you do some research. Why don't you tell us, what are you working on?
2: Uh, sure, yes, I am indeed in biology, and I, I work with birds, as many of us do in the biology department. Um, the, the species I work with is is the song sparrow, which probably many people are familiar with, a very common North American bird, little brown sparrow, um, that can be heard around campus. Um, so I, my area of research is behavioral endocrinology, so just In a nutshell, that's basically, um, I'm interested in hormones and sort of what the internal state of of the birds, uh, how that affects uh, the behaviors we see them do externally.
0: That's really cool. Uh, Could you maybe just elaborate on like, what what hormones are we, what kind of hormones are we talking about?
2: Oh, sure. Um, So my work has all been focused on testosterone, um, and I'm looking at that in relation to um phases of the bird's life where they're doing a whole lot of moving so chief amongst those is migration um so these sparrows do migrate um from here down some of them as far as florida um for the winter and then they come back following spring um so i'm I'm looking at does testosterone um Play a role in uh, sort of regulating uh, different aspects of of that behavior. So when they migrate, or how far they're going to migrate, or um, so you know, does their internal hormonal state influence that uh, that be- behavior?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because when we talk about testosterone, we think more about reproduction. Uh, it's how how those kind of hormones may affect the migratory behavior. I'm guessing that's your thesis topic, but do you have a bit more intel on that?
2: Uh, Sure. So, yeah, I I mean, definitely that is sort of the first thing you think of is that um, reproduction. Um, I I guess one way to think about it uh, initially is, um, so when birds are coming back in the springtime, they're, uh, they're going through this migration, and right at the end of that migration, they're going to they're going to want to breed. Um, so the, there's a whole lot of things that have to happen to go from their life, uh, you know, down in Florida, to uh, going through a period of of really extensive sort of endurance exercise as they're flying back here, um, and then they're going to move into breeding. Um, so what it seems like testosterone does and there's there's a number of pieces of evidence for this is it it's important in sort of setting setting those changes in motion um sort of like the the internal physiology that has to change for the bird to be able to make this long distance flight um and then be able to breed at the end of it um so interestingly it's it's, sometimes testosterone sort of acts at a remove um like if you look at the how testosterone changes over the course of of a year in an average male you know it's going to go way up during the breeding season and then sort of gradually taper off and then they'll have really low levels of of testosterone in their system um, almost uh, almost undetectable through the winter Um, but then usually at least in some species in in sparrows in particular you get this surge sort of in midwinter of testosterone the level will go up and come back down and experiments have shown that that's that's actually necessary for, you know, a few months later, triggering this whole suite of things that happens where the birds, um, they start eating a lot as the spring is coming, they put on a whole lot of fat so that they can um, do these long flights. Um, they have to build muscle for the flights. Um, you know, and, and then at the end of it, you know, that their gonads have to grow because they actually shrink their gonads, the gonads during the winter when they're not using them um, so they have to, you know, regrow the gonads in spring. So all, all these things have to happen. Um, and testosterone seems to be an important part of, of triggering that whole set of processes. You
0: know, um, you know, you hear about when I hear testosterone, I think maybe like, I don't know, it's like bodybuilders or injecting or it's like a, it's like a manly, oh, you've got to have testosterone to be like aggressive or something like that. Um, but but I'm I'm generally thinking about it in, in in humans, right? So so now we have birds, and birds are pretty different. And it sounds like they're certainly doing like my gonads don't shrink and grow and stuff like that. And I'm not migrating anywhere. So um, h- how is it possible that that uh, that uh, testosterone is doing such disparate things in different species?
2: Yeah, well, it's. Um... I mean, it's an interesting question. Um, and actually it's funny that you should mention the bodybuilding it's uh, you actually have to go through the number of permits just to use testosterone, just because, you know, it's the same molecule. And they don't want people uh, to steal, stealing some of that and uh, bodybuilding on the side, but, uh, but yeah, no, um, it is, it's one of many different hormones, actually, that if you compare between mammals and birds um, it, you know, it's, it's the same molecule or virtually the same molecule that will show up in both groups, but sometimes they do very different, sometimes completely opposite things. Um, I know one example off the top of my head is this hormone called ghrelin that uh, your stomach makes, um, and in humans, high levels of ghrelin make you really hungry and want to eat, um, but in birds, high levels of ghrelin actually do just the opposite, that you don't want to eat if your ghrelin goes up. Um and as to exactly why that is, I mean, probably, I mean, partly it'll be sort of the evolutionary history of what happened in these different groups of animals. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, it is, <laughs> it is weird that they they do such different things. And um, I mean, I don't have a, an exact answer for you of why that is.
1: Yeah, if we have all the answer, we won't have any work anyway, so... <laughs> Um, So you're studying testosterone in relation to, uh, you say, movements, uh, migration in particular, but you also mentioned other kind of movement?
2: Yeah. uh, One thing I spent quite a bit of time looking at was uh, juvenile birds. Um, And part of the thinking for that was, um, you know, maybe sort of the behaviors that they do when they're juveniles are, are sort of priming the bird for behaviors they're going to do later in life. Um, so one thing that they do is when they first leave the nest, they do um, move around uh, the landscape that they're on quite a bit. Um, and the thinking is that they're sort of scouting for, you know, uh, when these birds are one year old, they're, they're going to be fully sexually mature, they're going to want to breed. So the thinking is that they're taking the time to sort of um well probably a few different things I mean learning how to fly (laughs) getting exercise and and also sort of scouting out uh where they might want to try to breed after they've migrated um so so there's quite a bit of of movement and exploration happening in there um so I was putting little radio tags on juvenile birds and and walking around with an antenna and following them around the property and seeing how much they moved and um I'd taken blood samples from all the birds too so i was looking at you know does do their testosterone levels um in any way correlate with this movement that they're doing um and i i, I haven't in that case i i haven't found any strong evidence that it's testosterone is really affecting that early life stage um which maybe makes sense i mean they're um you know that they're not sexually mature so they're, they're not needing a whole lot of testosterone for anything else um but it's they all do have measurable levels of testosterone in their system even when they're freshly out of the nest Um, so it's 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 there doing something but
0: (laughs) so that that's the that was the juveniles you said and then in adults it's a it's a different different ball game
2: yeah so uh, adults um there definitely seems to be at least something going on. Um, actually, the, my most exciting result so far is uh, looking at um, actually manipulating the testosterone in, in adult males, putting, putting little tiny implants in them that actually release testosterone into the bloodstream um, and so maintain it at higher levels. Um, so I put those in, in birds in the fall um, at a time of year when usually the testosterone would be coming down um but so i put a bunch of birds you know boosted their levels back up and then uh released them uh during the time when they would normally be leaving for migration in the fall uh and then and they all had radio tags on them as well so i could see what they were doing um in in, release them near a, a fixed radio tower that was picking up their signal all the time um so as soon as it you know left the area of that tower that was sort of assumed to be okay, they've left on migration. Um, and we did actually see that if you increase the, the levels of testosterone at that, at that stage of, of the annual cycle, then they, they actually stay on average about a week longer. Um, so it, it, it's, it was within the period when the wild birds are normally already migrating, um, but these higher testosterone males uh, would would stick around uh, whereas the ones, um, you know, that just had a blank implant put into them, uh, they would, many of them would just take off right away. Um, so it's, um, it, it, I guess it, it's interesting. Um, one thing I, I don't think I mentioned before is that, uh, testosterone can actually influence molt. So when birds need to replace their feathers, uh, the song spur only does it once a year. So it happens in the fall. After they've finished breeding, um, if you and the testosterone coming down seems to be essential for uh, having that fall molt, um, and also then putting on fat to do the fall migration. So it's sort of the opposite of, of the spring that you know you you seem to need that surge in midwinter to get spring going, but then in fall you actually need the testosterone to come down in order to then go into fall migration. Um, and so, if you, you know, the test, giving them testosterone can actually halt the growth of feathers. Like a feather halfway grown in will just stop growing if you boost the testosterone. Um, so it seems like uh, that that's in some way playing into the quote-unquote decision of, of when they're going to actually start migrating. That if you boost the testosterone, they're thinking, oh, no, maybe I guess we don't want to, maybe we're, <laughs> maybe they're thinking they're back in breeding mode all of a sudden so that they don't want to, you know, this is not the time to migrate.
1: Is it something that you measure, the, the feather moult in, in your birds, that maybe some birds didn't finish their moult before migration and that their plants stop this moult completion? Yeah,
2: well, what we did with that was we looked at, um, so in the, they're, they're replacing all of their feathers. So that's wing feathers, body feathers, tail feathers. Um, so the ones that they actually use to fly are the wing and tail feathers. Um, so what we did is we waited until all the birds had re- had completely replaced all the flight feathers, so all the tail feathers, all the wing feathers. Um, some of them were still working on their body feathers, but we figured, you know, if the, the, they can at least fly well <laughs> if they've got all those, those wing feathers replaced. Um, yeah, so that was how we tried to kind of control for that is make sure they grew all those feathers in before we
0: started the experiment uh presumably you know female song sparrows or is it song song sparrows right am i saying that song, right? sparrow, yeah. song sparrows <laughs> thought they got the name wrong for a second but anyway female song sparrows uh presumably have to also migrate because they need to be there with the males as well and then presumably they also have to mold um but also presumably they don't have testosterone in the same way so like how are the females doing this stuff that's all seemingly testosterone dependent yet without testosterone yeah
2: um they actually they do have testosterone um it's it's certainly lower than the males um but to give an example um like some of the the measurements we were taking like right at the beginning of spring um the males would be around two three four nanograms of of testosterone per milliliter of blood um the females would usually be under a nanogram but you know still sort of in the same ballpark of the testosterone concentration and um i mean they can they can produce it like like, i mean they don't have testes obviously so that they don't produce as much it's it's always the levels are always lower in them Um, but they do follow some of these same patterns uh, of the annual presence or absence of testosterone in, in the blood.
0: So they got just, they got just enough to get by. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm also kind of intrigued by this, um, this device that you're using to, to, you know, increase the testosterone. Um, uh, can you tell us like how this device was developed and how you put it on? Like how, how are they, they're pretty small. So I'm assuming it's really small. And then it also can't really impede with but they're flying because they're supposed to fly with it. So how, how'd you get it that small and how do you get it on?
2: Right. Um, so, so you're talking about the um, like for, for actually increasing the testosterone. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's um, uh, it's a little implant. It's actually <laughs> very low tech. It's just a little, really just a little piece of beeswax. It's beeswax and peanut oil and crystallized testosterone dissolved into it wow Uh, so that
1: Sorry, size wise is what the grain of rice
2: it's about the grain of rice it's about it's about half a centimeter long it's a couple of millimeters wide so it's 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 a little cylinder you literally um melt the beeswax and the the peanut oil then dissolve in the the crystals of hormone uh then you put all that into a syringe and just squeeze out this big long (laughs) uh sort of big long cylinder of, of the, um, of the implants. And then you can actually measure the dosage according to how long you cut the piece of the implant. Um, and based on, you know, the concentration, you know, sort of assuming a uniform concentration in uh, the solution you initially mixed up, you can actually control the dose by measuring out the size of the little implant. Um, and then with that, we actually do, um, it's a really simple surgery to put it into the bird, so it goes in under the skin um, on on the back uh, sort of above um, above the wings so it's um, you know it, it's in a spot where it's not going to sort of hamper their wings um, but they're also uh, they're not like, the, like they're not going to have muscle action going on under the skin all the time that's going to force the thing out um, so the, the surgery is just a very simple a tiny little incision in the skin um then the the implant slides in under the skin, um, then just a little drop of veterinary glue uh to seal the thing up again.
1: So it's look like maybe tag we put in our cat and dog to find them back if we lost them. Yes. And bigger yeah, yeah, of looks... bigger the cylinder size, more testosterone the bird will have, if I understood correctly.
2: Yeah. Yeah, assuming a, a uniform concentration of of the mixture you make then yeah the bigger the bigger the pellet then uh then the more testosterone you're giving um and it, it's very fast acting too um i mean within 24 hours the the levels will start going up um
1: how long can last
2: um about a month usually i mean it's sort of the, the levels sort of peak within a couple of days then slowly gradually taper off and it's usually the, the effect is usually completely
0: worn off about a month later i i also remember you mentioned uh, radio tracking or something like that um how, how do you do that is that also in this uh this little uh little injection or is there like another little device they have to carry uh, no, that one goes
2: externally. Um, so what we do with those, uh, they're, they're, they're very small now, actually, that, that technology has really been miniaturized. Um, I mean, it's, uh, I was using little units that were, I think, 0.3 grams. Um, and what we do is uh, attach them um it goes it's called backpack style or a leg loop harness <laughs> so we glue these little uh, elasticized threads um onto the unit and then those stretch out and uh wrap around each leg um so they've got the little the little harness basically um holding the thing against their lower back sort of over the pelvis um and then that has uh it's just a little internal battery and uh, has an antenna on it and sends out a regularly pulsed signal um, and then so then you can walk around with an antenna and pick that up
0: hmm. that that's kind of cool do you, do you have any idea if um the other birds that are like not marked know like interact with that bird differently now that they're like hey what's that <laughs> ba- weird backpack thing you're wearing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um oh they're
2: they're definitely aware of it and and certainly the birds you put it on are, are really aware of it and some would like they'll always try to get it off for a while before they get used to it Um, but you know we don't have uh for the work i was doing it i mean it was putting them on sort of in the off season as it were um after the breeding when when the birds are becoming a little more solitary anyway um but i mean from other species i've never heard of any evidence of um you know birds being less successful at mating when they're wearing one of these or anything like that
0: um, I guess, another question then comes to mind is, uh, you know, if you're, you're trying to determine fundamental, uh, function of testosterone in these birds, um, like, does that, will the, you know, whatever you find is this, do you think this will apply to other birds? Um, you know, why, why this bird?
2: Yeah. Um, well, definitely. I mean, I mean, that that's the hope is that we can, um, you know, find something that applies. Well, maybe not universally, but at least more broadly uh, across different birds and and different different families of birds. Um, why this bird in particular? Um, well, partly for practical reasons. Um, they're relatively easy to catch, relatively easy to handle, and um, there'd been a number of, of other studies and pilot studies showing that these various things, devices and things worked with them. Um, but also because, uh, because I wanted to look at the effects on, on migration, you know, I wanted a species where there was variability um, in different aspects of the migration so that there's a lot of variability in these birds in, in how far they go, for instance. So I mentioned some will go all the way to Florida. You know, some will just fly to the other side of Lake Erie and that's that's good enough. <laughs> They'll spend the winter there. Um, so that, so there's a there's a lot of variation in the behavior, which we could use to try to um, you know look for correlations between that variation and and the what the hormones we're doing.
1: Are there study, but show that maybe testosterone is linked with a migration distance? Uh,
2: yes, actually that um, the, well, sort of the, the whole impetus for my entire project really was um, uh, a correlative study looking at um, it was the same population of song sparrows and what this study did it was um, a, a previous grad student at, at the AFAR. Um, it was, she looked at blood samples taken from birds, uh, right when they had first arrived back in the spring, uh, males and females. Um, so caught the birds then, you know, within a couple of minutes, took a blood sample, um, and then looked at what are the testosterone levels in that sample. Um, and then compared that with how far the birds had traveled, um, and looking the, for how far the birds had traveled, they were looking at, uh, cutting off little pieces of the claw, um, and looking at, well, uh, uh, that's sort of a whole other technique to, describe but basically looking at stable isotopes um, within that which um, essentially what it boils down to is it's a chemical signature that tells you approximately how far south that bird was when it grew that toenail Um, so comparing that that overall distance with with the circulating testosterone um, she found that the birds that stayed furthest north so that is they traveled the least distance they had the highest testosterone so it seemed like if you have more testosterone, you're you're going to stay closer to the breeding ground. You're not going to fly as far, um, and and there was a fairly strong correlation with that. So that so that was sort of, you know, the impetus for a lot of my work was well, can we sort of experimentally manipulate these things and see if, um, you know, is this is this just a correlation? Is, is there something more specific going on here?
1: Yeah, that's super cool because in the end. Your study where your birds stay in your migratory area when they were implanted with testosterone reinforce the previous study that show that birds with more testosterone stay closer. They just didn't migrate or not migrate as soon, so they probably won't go as far. So it's, each study supports each other, so it's a pretty cool result.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it definitely, um, it definitely seems to point to the, uh, to the same sort of thing.
0: I, I guess I'm wondering uh, if there's variability in migration, then, you know, how important is migration? I mean, what, why are birds even migrating anyway?
2: Uh, well, good question. And I, I mean, some, some will actually stop. Uh, I mean, you can have things like, uh, like American robins around here that, I mean, some of them just, they, they don't migrate anymore. They, they stay here, they have enough food now over the winter. So they, they just stay here all winter um so uh, i i mean i i guess sort of the main reasons are for migration are resources so if if you if you're living in a place where during the winter you can't find enough food then you've got to go somewhere where you can find food um and i guess the other thing too for birds is that um I, i mean they do there are all these seemingly fairly drastic physiological changes that they have to go through to, to do a migration. Um, but, I mean, they can do it. <laughs> it. It's sort of built into their physiology now. So, um, I mean, that they, they can do it, so they take advantage of it. Um, and, you know, sometimes you, know, you kind of wonder maybe maybe this isn't actually such a big deal for them. Maybe this is just how things are for them.
0: Hmm, I guess, I guess there's various motivations, it sounds, uh, that a bird could migrate, and uh, maybe different birds have slightly different motivations. Um, but also, I guess, thinking more in my human-centric mind, humans, we sort of migrate in a way. Uh, and some, some people will, will move regularly, uh, but others will just move for work, like I did for school. I, I migrated here for my PhD. Uh, what about you? Uh, what brought you to Western? Um, are you from here? Uh, how'd you get here?
2: Uh, yeah, I, well, I, I am actually, I grew up here in London. Um, so I sort of have come full circle. I went to Guelph for my undergrad and York for my master's. And uh, <laughs> I'm sort of completing my tour of Southern, southwestern Ontario Uh, but i mean really what brought me here was was the advanced facility for avian research and um, you know i'd done a master's in ornithology um i really like birds i've been a bird watcher for a couple of decades (laughs) um so i i um you know i I really wanted to pursue more work with ornithology and this was sort of a world-class state-of-the-art facility so that, that was my number one reason for coming here
0: i guess uh you know uh, as we get sort of to the close you have a um a cool trajectory you here in your career you know you followed a path where you you knew what you wanted and you know you like birds and you followed your passion and 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 I think that a lot about grad school we're all grad students here we know that if you weren't passionate about it we wouldn't do it it's it's a grind <laughs> right so um oh, yeah <laughs> with that in mind uh somebody else out there you know they're passionate about something be it birds or or whatever else, uh, what would you say to them if they wanted to follow their passion and do graduate studies like you? Well, um, I mean, I,
2: I would say if you really want it to do it, then then definitely do it. I mean, I think we need, um, you know, I, I mean, I think we always benefit from a, a more educated population. And, um, I mean, there's so many questions out there to address that, uh, you know, the the more people the merrier. <laughs> Um, I guess at the same time, though, I, I would think, um, you know, like for me, my passion was birds and, and I, uh, but I, I really liked sort of the academic side of things. Um, and I mean, I know a lot of people who are really passionate about birds who, you know, they, they, they don't sort of have the more intellectual approach to it. it it's more, um, you know, they like working with birds, they like being outside, they like um, maybe a more just sort of a, a more strictly technical relationship with with brood research. And um I think sometimes that gets undervalued. Um, so I mean it sort of uh, I guess depends on on you know exactly what aspect of a thing that you you really are passionate about. Um, and I mean, like you mentioned, grad school is a grind. I mean, there, there's so many other things that you have to do. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, if you don't enjoy at least some of those, then that, that could sort of kill your interest in birds. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess it's not a decision to be taken lightly because I mean, it is an ex- a big expense and a big time commitment, but, um, I mean, if you at least enjoy sort of, uh, I guess I would say you have to sort of enjoy intellectualizing things. And that, you know, if you like sort of treating things from that angle, then definitely go for grad school.
0: Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on and telling us about the, your work.
2: Oh, thanks so much for uh, having me on.
0: Well, that is uh, the end of our show. Thanks for listening. Uh, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Ariel Frame. Co-host was Claire Bettini. We've been speaking with Garth Casborn, and this episode was produced by Emily Hutchinson. If you'd like to get involved in the show, you want to get in contact with us, email us at gradcast at sogs.ca. You can also follow us on uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Gradcast Radio. We're all over. Uh, you can listen to us. You're probably listening to us on the podcast app. If there are any type of podcast app, we're available there. But you can also find us on our website, gradcast.ca, and on the radio, Radio Western, 94.9 FM. Thanks for listening. Have a good night.